Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Our rebellion is all that remains to push back the Empire. I think you might be able to help us. When was the last time you were in contact with your father? What is this? It appears he is critical to the development of a super weapon. If my father built this thing, we need to find him. All right. How many do I need? They are requesting a call sign. It's, um, Rogue. Rogue One. Hello, hello, hello. This is the Next Reels Film Board on Rashpixel.fm. Each month, a gang of thugs gather hither to spoil a movie that just opened in theaters. I am JJ. And tonight, we thugs all don the trappings of a time long ago in a galaxy far, far away to expose all of the spacey details of Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I jumped into the Star Wars name generator online to fully acclimate us. So let me introduce our hosts to their galactic alter egos. Pete Wright, you are Scouts Blellet, a slave from the Cathol sector. I had no idea you were doing this, and now I am totally thrown off my game. Uh, really? <laughs> yes, I had I had a thing, and now it's totally... It's, I'm Scouts Blellet. It's an, I, now I... Having trouble with my own identity. Well, Quiet, have, slave. <laughs> <laughs> you have some God, man, I took that it. so easy now. Wow. All right. Well, Tommy Handsome, for you, it kicked out Coat Chab Inghen, 
a conscripted stormtrooper from Trierion. Trierion. Honestly, guys, that checks out. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy Nelson, your made-up name seems too straightforward for pronunciation, so I want to try to make it fancier, but it's Kor Nova War, a wanderer from Ampliquen. I'm with you, JJ. Tommy told me I had to be. We will put a link to the Star Wars name generator in our show notes. But before we go any further, you should check out all the fun stuff about this show and its sibling shows at thenextreel.com. Go subscribe in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And I said or, but you should do all those things. And we're also there on the Instagram with the hashtag pony prize, hashtag guess the movie challenge. Guys, have we picked the winner yet this year? Coming soon. Our next Coming episode. soon. The Pony yes. Prize is such a special thing, and we're interactive like that. So come join us and interact with us as well. So let's get some of that force in this joint. Hey, Scouts. <laughs> you, 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 you know this name, Scouts. It, it is remarkably similar to my porn star name, so now I know <laughs> why it sounds so familiar and, and also why I haven't been getting enough work. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I actually, uh, man, I, the, the further away I get from the movie, the more I found myself enjoying it. First and foremost, I think it was beautiful. It was just a beautifully shot and visualized film. The effects worked for me. The integration of the ships in, the, in these beautiful lush landscapes. I love the choices they made with that. And that made it really easy to kind of let myself go and, and and be one with this movie. Can't wait to hear how it hit you guys. Cool, cool. And it's interesting that it's sort of crescendoing up as you get away from it. I think that might be an interesting thing to talk about as well. Uh, Tommy, what were your thoughts? I will. Be, I'm the probably the least fanboy, as everyone knows, of the Star Wars. <laughs> I almost said Star Trek. That tells you of uh, the Star Wars stuff. Um, I liked about a third of the movie. I loved the big battle at the end. Uh, everything else I found to be kind of a big slog, uh, filled with sort of over-portentious uh, portentous dialogue and some performance things. Uh, but when we got to that final battle, I was hooked. And I got that feeling that I think you guys get all the time, where that tingle of, oh, I used to have a heart and enjoy these things. Like when the AT-ATs showed up, <laughs> I really sort of leaned into it and was like, okay, I'm here, you got me. So for this movie, it was an achievement definitely for me. Uh, wait, yeah, meaning that because it's not for me and it's not my world, um, I was uh, pretty happy overall. Interesting, and that sounds, you know, as you, you sound like crescendo as you get to the end of the film. So that's interesting too, that that's kind of the direction for everyone. Andy, is that similar to how you felt about it? Um, I enjoyed pretty much the whole thing. I, I really kind of loved it. And I, I actually am probably the only one here who has seen it twice now. I went uh Thursday night to the late show and then I with the family today. No, no, no. I'm not saying to brag. I'm just saying I've had a chance to really kind of envelop myself in the story a little more. And so the second time around, I was able to just kind of, you know, just pay attention to everything a little bit more. And I already knew it was happening. So I could really kind of, you know, get into some of the the different elements and everything. And I mean, I, I had a great time. The second time I thought it was even better. And um, yeah, I just I really love I really love all of it. So I'm I'm going to be that one on the show. Well, I haven't stopped watching it. I'm watching it right now, in fact. And um, I'll oh, tell no. you, I've seen them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it, that and that's interesting. That's good. Uh, I want to hear your perspective on it too. For me, uh, it sounds like I might be the furthest in the opposite column about this film because I think that in general, the story, my fears about the Force Awakens were that it was going to dilute something for the entire 
sort of canon of Star Wars. And I, and, I, and I never felt that way in The Force Awakens. But through much of this movie, I really felt like it diluted um, what I thought about what has happened. Now, that, that being said, as soon as we got to the connecting tissue, um, which I didn't think this movie was going to do, um, to the original trilogy, I was so in love with that stuff. And I thought that was great. And when I realized that that was happening, it made me like it a lot more. But if I really sort of think of it as a standalone movie, I, I thought the story was super weak um, and and super straightforward and not and not really that interesting. It was the, the the interest that I had in the film was about the Star Wars story, and when it connected, that's when it made sense to me. The rest of it was really sort of um, it was weak for me as a viewer, um, and I didn't necessarily attach myself to the characters, and I didn't attach myself to the story. So for me, it really fell behind. But that being said, I love the Star Wars story and that connecting tissue, the the scenes that really sort of brought us into a new hope, which I didn't think it was going to do. That super winning. I mean, honestly, that stuff was so great at the end. So um, I guess it, maybe it's, it's good for me to go back to you, Andy, and, and maybe if you want to talk a little bit about this film in and of itself as is as a standalone film, because they've described it as a standalone film, but clearly they didn't do that when they literally banged it into the, A New Hope at the end. Yeah, it's interesting that they, that they did kind of, uh, you know, pump this idea of these Star Wars stories being standalone films, and then they made their first one really a non-standalone film, it really is kind of just another prequel, is really kind of what it is, right? Um, and so uh, to that end, um, you know, I mean, it's it's odd that they marketed it that way, because it really, I mean, my understanding is George Lucas said, you know, everything that's, you know, part of the, the I don't know what you call them, but the episodic Star Wars movies um, those all have to have these characters, um, these specific characters, and all these other spinoffs can have these whatever you want. And and so this one, I guess, to that end, we're not following anyone in particular from the main story. I mean, they kind of come in and out of it, but you know, I I don't know. I I don't have a problem with it um, being kind of just this other prequel and that it kind of fits in as this uh, lead in. I mean, this is essentially the story of the the um the crawl at the beginning of Star Wars episode 4 um you know the story of you know these rebels who stole this uh the plans for the death star and you know it's it's that's what it's always been i mean we've all known that that's what the story was going to be so it, to me it's surprising that people um ever kind of felt that it was going to be a standalone when they pretty much spelled it out ages ago when they told us that that was what the story was. So, I mean, I, I, I went into this with no surprise that that's, you know, what I was going to be getting. And I got what I got, exactly what I was expecting. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that it works really well as as just another element in the Star Wars world. It's nice seeing a Star Wars story that didn't have to rely on Jedi, that, you know, was really just kind of about war and and these people who get caught up in war and and people who are, are fighting the you know the various sides of war and people who are stepped away from war because they don't want to take sides. I really enjoyed all of that. And I, I think I don't know. I guess just the fact that it's standalone means, you know, Jin is obviously a character we're not going to be seeing in any other stories. Um uh of course that being said, I mean they they are already there's already a, a prequel book to this <laughs> film 
that goes back and details all these characters and how they got to their various points. So, I mean, yeah, they just kind of keep, you know, wrapping in and, you know, folding in on itself. But I don't know. I, I don't have any problems with this being a standalone slash prequel. Was there a point in the movie for for all you guys when you realized, if you didn't from the beginning, which I didn't, that everyone was going to die? Yeah, <laughs> because when the, when because none of them are in episode four? It occurred to me. Yeah, I, that didn't occur to me because I was a little confused. What a surprise. Uh, but the uh, when the robot died. Yeah. When K... Two so I just totally have that uh, off the off the dome. Uh, when K two so I'm not staring at something that was written for me. Uh, when he died, I was like, "Oh right, none of these people were at the award ceremony, so it's all going down." I, I hope I said spoilers enough at the beginning, but yeah, everybody's going to die if you haven't seen Rogue One yet. Um, but the yeah, when K two so I was trying to place him for the longest time in the scenes leading up to the big battle in A New Hope. Because I was thinking, oh, of course the robot's going to live, right? You know, because he's this sort of main character in this. But nobody can live because in 1977, they needed, they had an entirely different group. So I think that was interesting. That's something that caught me by surprise somewhere midway in the film. But hey, at least we have Red Leader and Gold Leader live. Right. I think that was a real gift of the standalone story, honestly. And that's one of the things that I found so appealing. Like, I get it. There will be canon books and things like that. But the fact is, the people in this film, the this was telling the story of so many people died to give us these plans you know i mean and i that sure. that narrative has hit us from the, all of the the first prequel like that's the story everything we have achieved as rebels comes at great cost here is a sample of that great cost. And i think they pulled it off right i mean it it was no um you know there there've been comparisons to um you know other great sort of team movies we've talked about some of them in our in our own show uh it doesn't hold up to some of those in the just sort of the the buddy area i think it, that's that's one of the shortcomings of of the film for me that uh i, I didn't feel like this was as cohesive a a team as I kind of wanted it to be, uh, but I did like every character that that we got to know at any level. I I felt like they they did a great job. They each had a role. One of the things I liked so much was that the force was seen as something celebrated by this kook martial artist, right? That that there was such a there was a distance between what the force was. Nobody thought the force was uh, was a, a thing. You know, nobody made a big deal about the force existing. You know, it was it was just kind of a uh, kind of a, a narrative narrative that was celebrated in the corner of the movie and it helped a guy at a pinnacle moment maybe uh, but I, I thought that was great and the other thing that I loved so much is how this story in in terms of the way it handles its politics actually demonstrated not just the story of a rebel band and what they're doing to overthrow the great empire but a point in history when the major nations came together and said you know what maybe we shouldn't fight. Uh, I thought that was an amazingly powerful pivot right mm. in the middle of the film uh, of of just how uh, nations become, uh, you know, servants. And that hit me right in the chest. I thought that was a very powerful moment, and uh, I, I really appreciate how they handled it. That's interesting to me. I didn't I didn't carry as much weight into that piece, but I really like the way that you're describing it right now. Because it, I guess for me, and maybe it's because of the nature of the prequel, or maybe it's because we know the outcome, which is the nature of the prequel there, but I, I felt like 
there was an outcome that was always going to be destined. It was just a matter of how we were going to get there. So uh, I think, you know, the way you're describing it would bring me new attention to that. I think I think you're right. That is the whole point. And that gets to this question of, and a number of people, our very own dear friend of the show, Ben Lott, has been bringing this up too. And he was not a fan of the film. He's been sharing some of his insights in Slack. He wrote a, a, a well, very well-written sort of rebuttal to the film and the things he didn't like about it. You can find it on Facebook or his letterbox page. Uh, you know, but it, it does center on this question, you know, why does this film exist or, or this movie has no reason to exist? And, and I think your statement gets to that, too. And I, and I have a really hard time with that question. Why should any movie exist, right? Sure. Um, the, the movie should exist because there is a creative body that thinks they have a story to tell and need to get it out and share it with the world. The movie exists because there are characters that are inside somebody that have to be written. And, and we get that feeling if you've ever been creative that that's okay we can celebrate that whether it executes well is is fine but the movie should exist the movie does tell us a, a part of the star wars narrative that has been left heretofore vacant and the fact that somebody has a, a, a brick to put in that particular hole in the wall why should we you know why should we uh, give them trouble for that i think we should celebrate them trying to do something interesting and new and in fact they made a very dark star wars film and i feel like this is a story that paves the way to a different kind of star wars universe and maybe it leads the way toward uh you know the the rated r logan uh story that they've been trying to make you know I, yeah. why not celebrate change in this regard i really appreciate it and just like you said the connective tissue leading from this movie to a new hope was brilliant the final corridor scene when darth vader goes ape crazy and <laughs> kills all those poor guys <laughs> the soldiers that we came to love in the first corridor scene and sorry was exhilarating. I knew exactly how it was going to end, uh, but it was ex an exhilarating race down the hall. I loved it and and was just on the edge of my seat. So uh, let's celebrate that stuff. That, it, well, and that makes sense. And again, uh, the weight that you're bringing to some of those individual conversations, especially the big one, the Gathering of the Nations, I think is is valuable. And, and I don't think I would ever argue that there's no reason, uh, that there isn't a reason to make this movie. I think my, my sort of issue with it in terms of the story is that the execution of the, the arc that's coming with the story seemed a little thin in I guess the story of Jin as 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 she went she didn't have a necessarily an arc she had a, a a through line right and that's all that was there and it seemed like the story mm -hmm. was always headed in this one direction as opposed to some sort of real development that I was looking for and and that's why I guess I I'm a I'm very pro the connective tissue and if I but if I examined the story that was made for this prequel, it seemed like it lacked the depth that I was looking for uh, in this sort of, in an additional Star Wars movie to add, or uh, in their language, an additional Star Wars story to add to what we're doing. Why was her through line so weak for you? I mean, we got to see her as a little girl. We got to see her mother ripped from her and killed. We got to see her father taken, and then she discovers it was a betrayal. Like, that defined how she related to the Empire, and frankly, to authority. We got to see that play out on screen. We got to see all of her narrative change when she sees him standing up on the platform and he dies as a result of her learning the truth about his role, about the fact that he was the guy who, who 
engineered. That is an amazing feat, right? If anybody should be questioning the narrative, it's the fact that he was able to engineer a hole in a giant planet-sized space station, and nobody noticed. That is amazing. Uh, but but she learned the truth and then became a new person. It changed her body language. It changed the way she moved on screen. I, I have such a hard time seeing why she doesn't have a thorough through line. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I, I guess I didn't catch that. So that like those changes that you noticed in her, I, I didn't. I wasn't taken along that emotional ride with her. She always seemed like a soldier. The the, the Forrest Whitaker remarks saying she, she was the best soldier, and she had this sort of determination from youth to to survive and these kind of things. It it, it didn't seem different to me. It seemed like she, she was one noted. She was a soldier, but she had no interest in in this war. I mean, and she even says when she first meets up with Saw when she with Forrest Whitaker, you know, I've delivered the message. They can deal with it now. And she was washing her hands of it. She had no interest in politics, you know, and and he even says to her, you know, he has that whole thing with, you know, you are, uh, you know, you got to take sides. And she's like, why should I take sides? I have no interest in taking sides. And she has that whole thing. And it's not until she sees the video or the the hologram of her father that kind of triggers that for her. And, you know, that's what starts breaking down that wall and, and that kind of pushes her along. So... I don't know. I'm with Pete on this whole thing. I feel that that did sort of going along with JJ saying, and I brought this up to the people that I saw the movie with last night and they disagreed with me. So get ready to disagree with me. But I felt that when she saw the hologram, that was the change that she needed. And then she became the person that she was. I was sort of wondering if that whole scene that takes place on Eridu. Now, yeah, the place where uh, she sees her father and her father dies. I kind of felt like I there there weren't enough stakes there. And the idea of JJ sort of saying the things that maybe the plot, certain of the things were a little bit weak. I agree in that I came away from that scene wondering if that entire scene was taken out, would a whole lot of things really change? She didn't really learn a lot there. It was a very, very long, long sequence of maybe going to shoot him, maybe not. But the fact that he didn't shoot him, he chose not to be a sniper. She already knew what her father had told her about the fake, uh, about the the kill switch and the Death Star and everything. It just sort of felt like there were a lot of scenes that maybe could have been taken out and the film would have still trucked along as well. And that made it feel like a little bit more of a video game to me of just sort of uh, plodding forward in different ways in order to have certain things happen that weren't really that key to hey we've got to get the plans get the plans well i'm i'm and i'm evolving my thought a little bit as we talk about this right because i'm comparing it a little bit to the way that i looked at the force awakens and one of the things i talked about last year when we saw it is the scene with kylo ren and ray when they're uh when he's trying to extract the information from her right and he's affecting her with the force and she finally makes her her awakening of the force there and really when you if you observe that scene as not a lover of the idea the philosophy in star wars of the force it looks like a couple of people just kind of shaking their hands and struggling and being emotional, <laughs> right? But when I watch that, because I am those things, I got it, right? So maybe for me, when we're talking about this through line and this direction and this this drama, this emotional drama that played out in Rogue One, maybe I'm more connected to the mythology that's associated with the Force, with the religion 
in Star Wars as opposed to the war. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's a fair criticism for me to say that the movie failed in it, but maybe I'm just not connected to this in, in that degree. Because I think, I think the point that you bring up, Tommy, is, is interesting about maybe pulling these scenes out and seeing if the stakes differ. I, don't, I, I, I can't really wrap my head around that right now. But when I put, for me, when I put Jin versus Ray, I was far more connected to the Daisy Ridley character. Uh, and I don't know if it's an acting thing. I don't know if it's the story thing. But in general, um, it, it, th- that's what came up for me. I was far more emotional when she went through her arc in The Force Awakens than I ever was in Rogue One. Do you think part of that is because uh, mm-hmm. in this film, Jin is such a closed off character? I mean, she's she's the sort of character who's gone through war and has kind of closed herself off. She's created those Sarah Connor walls up and doesn't let anything get through. And it's not until later in the film where we're able to kind of really kind of see some of that side of her. Whereas with with Ray, she's she's had a, I mean, sure, she's had a hard life, but she hasn't been going through war or anything. And I, she's an easier to connect to character right out of the gate. You know, she's she's a fighter and everything, but she's she's a, a character we who who has her walls down. We're able to kind of get into her emotionally right out of the gate. It's an interesting it's an interesting point, but that doesn't necessarily forgive it. We care about walls up Sarah Connor in the second Terminator movie because we spent not walls down the first one with her. Well, so they yeah. were allowed they were allowed to just present a character who was made of stone. If you just do that out of out from the break, it is really hard to. That's a hard thing to ask to um, identify with and to really sort of care for. Uh, I guess the idea, Pete, going to what you said of should this movie be made? Absolutely, this ma- movie uh, should be made and it should exist and all that kind of stuff. We all knew Titanic was going to sink, but I cared about Titanic because I I personally really liked Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. <laughs> Kate Winslet. <laughs> Cared I a did, lot, didn't you? I didn't yeah. have those people in this movie. The emotional barometer is kind of how I judge this, right? That's how. That's what I love about movies is when I go that way. For you, Andy and Pete, did w- was Jen's story emotional to you? Did you follow her on the emotion? Because I didn't. And, and I think it's fair that some people might, but I, I didn't. Whether it was because of her walls up or not. Was mm-hmm. there a piece where you got emotionally moved because of what Jin was doing in the story. I mean, definitely. And, and certainly, I think more so the second go around when I kind of already had wrapped my head around the story, um, I, I, I found it easier to really just kind of go along with her story and everything. And certainly, as we get toward the end and people are making some of these decisions and she's going into these situations uh, knowing that, you know, this is not going to go well. And she has her little speech about, you know, we have to we have to take that chance and if we get through it, then we've got to take the next chance and we just have to keep going. I mean, I found that very inspirational. And as she kind of continued going forward and, and having that final confrontation with uh, with Krennic up on the, the whatever it is, the little dock under the satellite dish. I mean, that was great when she's giving that confrontation to him as to who she is and everything. I mean, I, I was very emotionally connected with all of that and with those last moments between uh, her and Cassian on the beach. I mean, I, I found it very powerful and um, it was a story I very easily connected with emotionally. And I, I understand some people are not going to, um, but for me, as I watched it, I really got emotionally invested in these characters. I think there were two moments for me that that actually demonstrated the stakes, um, maybe three, that really hit me as as sort of moments that I... I'm tracking bookmarks in the film. The first one is early in the film when Cassian uh, is talking to his informant, 
and they, you know, he shoots the two stormtroopers in that back alleyway, and the guy says, oh, I'm never going to be able to climb up here because of my bum arm, and Cassian goes up behind him and says, you know, it's okay, it's okay, and shoots him. That demonstrated the stakes of this film were going to be different than any other Star Wars movie that I'd ever seen, because this guy has been introduced as the hero, and he has just done something that is categorically not heroic. Right. Uh, and, and so that was the, the first piece. The second piece was also between him and Jin, actually, when he made the leap in the giant hard drive uh, <laughs> tower uh, and, and was shot and fell. Now, that, it turns out, was a trick. Uh, because he does come back a little bit, but I thought, oh my goodness, they're going to start picking these people off. They just killed the robot. Now they're going to kill him in this tower, and she's going to be left alone. And I think the way she, just her reaction in an action scene, uh, as, as she is able to climb up that tower um, through the little Cuisinart door up at the top, I, I thought she handled really well, and that just sort of, again, cemented her place in the narrative, and, and I felt it was great. I think one of the challenges that we have with Jin is that, in fact, they did did have to write a story with a, a, you know, and do their best with a complete arc, however well you think they did with that, but they had to do a complete arc in one movie, right? What we have with, uh, you know, with The Force Awakens is we have this new character and we just get to meet uh, a little bit of her and watch her grow over the course of two more movies. Uh, and and I think that's, uh, that, that may be, we may be looking at growing pains as they try to do different things and tell different kinds of stories, closed-ended stories within this broader universe. Well, that's totally fair. And that, and that kind of puts it in, you know, sending them back to a little bit more traditional movie making instead of looking in these huge universe sort of franchise building things. I think one of the other sort of different things that they're doing, and I think we have to acknowledge this, this is something that my wife brought up, is that they've now put out two new movies. The Disney movies both have leading ladies. And we took my kids, my five-year-old and my seven-year-old, to both of them, and it didn't phase them at all. They didn't they didn't need to talk about the fact that there was a woman action lead. They didn't think it was weird. And I think that's kind of a special thing to bring up. I, I don't know. If, if uh, Pete, Andy, did your kids go? I mean, did, wh- what did they say about that? My, my kids, um, I, I will say for my kids, I mean, they, they both handled this, the, the story well. It's definitely a darker story. Uh, they didn't say, that, I mean, the fact that there is a, a female protagonist doesn't even phase them. I mean, it really just isn't anything that, uh, I mean, they're, I mean they, they see so much of that nowadays. I mean, with, you know, Frozen and Moana and, I mean, you know, just there's so many female protagonists these days that it, it's just not even weird to them, which is great. You know, I love that that's kind of the place that they're growing up. Um, but I mean, the the challenge for them was just the complexities of a story where you know there's so many shades of of good and bad, and a lot of things happening that I was constantly answering questions, and we had a a very long conversation after the movie trying to explain exactly what was going on. Sure, and I, I, yeah, that's and that's you know something that I want to get into its script as well, and the way that the movie started and sort of. Uh, uh, untangled the knot before they before they wrapped it back together. But it, in in terms of the the female thing, I, I definitely want to mention you know the idea that Leia was always a hero, but they made her dress up in sexy clothes and things like that. And she <laughs> her transformation to action was something that was that was that was pushed in the same way of her you know potentially her sexuality, especially if you're looking at Return of the Jedi. And that's something that is is not in these present in these movies. And we have these strong women, and I, I just think it's important the fact that that my boys are able to relate to those characters and that that's the world that they live in. I think that's really special. It's only for my kids. It's only a novelty when I bring it up. 
right? Yeah, it's, it's only exactly. they're like, like, wait, are you serious? Like you grew up and this wasn't a thing. You grew up and like I, I told them, I said, you know, if if we had seen this movie in 1984. Um, it would have been definitely all men and they would have all been white and there would have been no accents or they would have been fake. Uh, and that's just the way it was. But my kids are like, that's ridiculous. And they just, <laughs> they, it, it's only a novelty when I make it one, you know, that's, that's it. I think that's super great. In terms of what you're talking about, Andy, with the, with the story and sort of going different ways and going the dark ways, the, the pacing of the script at the front end is something that I had a real big problem with. The idea of the sort of, um, the vignettes from different planets with so many headings, planets. I, it was really hard for me to keep up. And I, I and unlike Tommy, that's something that I usually don't have a difficulty with. Uh, sorry, Tom. How uh, dare but, you? <laughs> but in general, I, I, I had a really tough time sort of getting on board with the movie until maybe even towards the end of the second act, really, in, in terms of where things were going uh, and how they were setting up the story. Did you guys find any difficulty with the pacing as they were introducing us to the geography? There were a lot of planets at the beginning, and I'm really glad that I saw it a second time because uh, I, too, was like, wait, now where where am I and why am I on this planet? And it, it was happening so fast and furious that it was a little... A little tricky to kind of keep up with all that. Second time really helped. Well, and especially since none of the planets were Ampliquen, where you're from. Exactly. I think um, <laughs> I think that was a key difficulty as well. Did your kids did your kids ask about the the sort of different places? Was that something that tripped your family up as well? Well, I mean, my my son is you know he struggles enough with reading. He's only six, and so every time text is on the screen, he's always wanting me to read it anyway. So that made it even more challenging. Right? Yeah. What is that? What is that? So it, it, I mean, it's, it's challenging. I, you know, it gets to a point where I think to a certain extent, as long as the location changes, um, and, and the, it's pretty obvious in the Star Wars universe because every planet is its own, you know, unique system. Um, every time it changes, I mean, you almost don't need to read the text. It, it just doesn't matter at the, you know, at the initial stages. You just know, oh, I'm in a new location. Right. And I think that happened in the first three, right, where they didn't need to give us captions. They just said, oh, this is Dagobah, you know. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, I don't think they ever do that until the prequels, right? Huh, that's interesting. Talking about Gareth Edwards uh, and what he brought to the film, I think it's interesting that each of these new movies is going to have a different director. Which is great. Yeah, that's my favorite part. Yeah, did you see anything special from Gareth Edwards in this one? I, I found myself wondering what I was seeing from Gareth Edwards because I, you know, and this is this is the part where, gosh, you know, uh, the rumors of reshoots and Tony Gilroy and, you know, I mean... What role did the reshoots have on the end of the film? You know, what what got changed? Uh, because I really, really like the end of the film. That's a real strong point for me. So, you know, I I generally find the tone of the film to be beautiful and the art direction to be quite lovely. And under, you know, Gareth Edwards' direction, I think it all came together of a piece. Uh, it, it reminded me sort of very much of my feelings about Godzilla. And, you know, in terms of the overall look of Godzilla, I mean, the first thing that came out of Godzilla was this beautiful sequence of of the paratroopers uh, you know jump falling through the clouds onto this giant you know super scaled monster and i thought that was some of the most beautiful uh, imagery that i'd seen in in that style of film i think he brought the, a really unique vision to it the something that i think is uh that i've noticed i mean i haven't i, I guess i have seen uh all of edward's films but um he has a good handle on telling stories with a sense of scale um, you know, both uh, monsters and Godzilla, 
they both um, have people dealing with things that are really big, whether it's landscapes that are very big, like in the case of this one, where you have these massive towers and you've got you know these adats coming in and everything, um, or giant space wars or whatever it is. I mean, he really kind of gives you a good sense of scale, which he definitely did in both Monsters and Godzilla. So I think that's something that he has a handle on as far as how to uh, how to put you know, small people, I mean, just people who happen to be small in this great, vast uh, space. And so I, I think to that end, he he constructed this film well. You know, Andy, to your point, and I'll, then Tommy, please take it. But I, I think that uh, that was one thing I made sort of a mental note of was every time you have a ship next to a planet, I got a renewed sense of that scale of, of huh. what I, I had never seen before. Like he put... He put ships sort of the size of planets or, or planets and ships in relative sizes that was unique in in the Star Wars vision for me. I agree with that. And it's an interesting niche if that's his niche. <laughs> I, the, I, I do big things well. Uh, mine is actually a little bit smaller, but uh, kind of like um, uh, in Cloverfield, different director Cloverfield, um, with the original Godzilla, what I remember is how long it took to really see the big bad. To really, well, I guess he didn't turn out to be the big bad, but he treats uh, with reverence his big person. This being, uh, for that being Godzilla, it was a long time before we really saw Godzilla without in shadow, full on, instead of just sort of seeing feet come down and stuff like that. The way that he handled uh, Darth Vader in this was one of my favorite things of the entire movie. With when the first time that we really see Darth Vader is that incredibly uh, backlit that backlit shot uh, where his shadow comes over um, Krennic. Yep, uh, you know, is just making him larger than life, and then the incredible Pete. You already brought up the hallway scene at the end when it's just black and you just hear him breathing, and then you see the red lightsaber. That's cool. Instead of just, it's so easy to just be like, let's have, everyone wants to see Darth Vader, so let's just have him do it. And there's a couple different ways that you can do it to build that up. And this was like the smartest, most elegant way. And I think that's, he's really good at that. I gotta, I gotta say the 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 Empire Strikes Back homage introduction to uh, you know Vader without the suit uh, when he's yeah. in the tank. I thought that was so gooey and gross and awesome. Like what a great <laughs> way to like build on the reveal that we've we've come to sort of know. Yeah, uh, we have this quote here in the show notes. A New Hope, uh, Star Wars 4, is the story of a boy who grows up in a tranquil home and dreams of joining a war. What if we have the story of a girl who grows up in a war and dreams of returning to the tranquility of home? Now, that's from Gareth Edwards. I, that, that's kind of something that I would question because that's, that's, I guess, it goes back to that piece about Jin's arc is that I never really got the sense that she wanted tranquility of home. I just, I just got the sense that she just didn't like what was going on. Yeah, I wonder when this quote came out. Like... <laughs> Is this a is this a quote of like yesterday that he just said that because that's not the movie that I saw. Like I wonder if this was before the reshoots and the change of the ending of the film. Right. Well, and that's a good question. I mean, what did you get from the Jin character and Felicity Jones playing it? Did um is that what you sensed especially from you Andy and Pete because you guys liked her so much? Um what what did she bring to the character? You know, that's that's interesting. The, some of the people that I saw it with uh, just really didn't like her. They they felt that she was kind of the the flattest performance in the film. I liked it. I I thought she had this great kind of uh, this kind of this cold presence, and she was um, you know 
closed herself off. She'd gone through a lot of difficulties because having been left behind by or having had her father and mother kind of, you know, taken away from her at such a young age, having saw abandon her. Uh, and, and she's just kind of this this tough woman. I, you know, I, I saw her in Inferno um, a few months ago, which, you know, wasn't very good. But, you know, I still enjoyed her in that. And I, I think she has just a, a great screen presence. And here, I don't know. I just felt that there was a, a nice quality to her being this hero, and I liked seeing her transform over the course of the story. I think, uh, I think if anything, she's getting a, a rough rap in this film, and I, I'm not quite sure why. I, I also really enjoy her performance, uh, and I, I, I don't know. I think she's a smart actress, and uh, you know, I really in, enjoyed her in um, uh, Theory of Everything, for example. I thought she was she was terrific, and uh, it made me really look forward to seeing her in this. I felt she she did uh, deliver a transformation over the arc of the film. I think she she fills a unique place, and we haven't seen a character like her uh, 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 in a, the Star Wars universe quite yet, and uh, and so I think she was sort of treading new ground in in a, a film like this. So I I think she was great. Um, I I'm. I have trouble with kind of defining or understanding the, the some of the criticisms that I hear of of her performance. Is it you know it it seems to come down to oh I I didn't like her accent or I didn't like how her mouth moved. Ooh, I don't and, like that. And I, that's not really fair criticism of the performance. I think she she did a fine job. Yeah, I guess that's why I kind of put my criticisms in more in the the idea of the story because I didn't feel like it took her places, but you guys did. So I don't want to take away from that either. Um, but a similar way that I felt about that was Diego Luna. Because he was kind of straightforward too. Pete, you mentioned that first emotional piece where he's the anti-hero or hero, hero as criminal, criminal as hero, in shooting that guy. Um, but it, it did. Did you guys ever think that uh, Diego was going to shoot uh, Jin's father? No, and I and I can get out of the way pretty early. I had a, a really big problem with Diego Luna in this movie. I can't exactly tell you why, but I just felt he was playing dress up the entire time. Um, I didn't. I didn't find him charismatic. I didn't find him rugged. I didn't find him really anything. This was a big problem for me for some reason of me connecting to this movie. I felt he was pretending to be someone else. Boy, I if there is one member of the team that I had trouble with, it's it's going to be this one. I haven't seen a whole lot of stuff uh, with uh, you know Diego Luna in a uh, Book of Life. He was a voice in a Book of Life. I saw Elysium. <laughs> Itu Mama Tambien. Each uh, moment, yes, uh, but but that's kind of it. Uh, maybe milk, but but I don't really remember the performances that well. Uh, for me, this was not a question of his performance, but the casting. I feel like they cast too young for that role. I, you know, he makes a case. Maybe that that's what I mean about playing dress up. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, it just felt like he was he was cast as a sort of it was millennial casting maybe, and right. it needed to be Gen X casting for that particular part. Um, but but I I recognize that they they wanted to cast a, in terms of of more or less a partnership uh, between the two to make that final symbolic on the beach moment uh, more powerful uh, between Jin and Cassie. And I I I get a sense that that's what they were going for. But for the rest of the movie. Uh, he was, he's just a little young. I thought he did a great job. I really liked him as an actor, but he was a little young. That's, you, that's my take. Even though he's 36, he's older than Felicity Jones. Yeah, but he's not like 45, you know, maybe 48. Like, I just needed a little bit more grizzled. He was acting so world weary. 
Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Well, he's but a home, young guy's guy. Like, room. Yeah. I don't know. You guys got to remember, though. I mean, he says that, you know, I mean, he's lost people, too. I mean, he's been in this war since he was six years old. And, I mean, this is a rebellion. You're going to have people all ages fighting. I mean, are you telling me that there weren't people during the revolution who were, like, you know, 12 years old run, running around with guns and fighting? I mean, that's exactly no, Andy, what's going on here. Don't don't misunderstand the criticism. It's not that that can't happen. It's that this character in this story felt a little young to be delivering the lines that he was delivering. Like, right. I just, if I had trouble buying it, it was, that felt like the reason for me. I'm not saying that young people aren't fighting. Obviously, that's that happens. And and we, we just need to turn on the news to see that happening, of course. I just didn't buy him. Huh. Okay. Well, I, I, I guess I'm just the, the, the lone voice on that one. Cause I mean, I really enjoyed him in this. I thought he actually carried it well. I thought he had the weight for the part and I, I liked him. I thought he did a great job. Um, really kind of that, that guy who was, uh, representing this, this bigger picture. And I mean, he's kind of got this dark side. I mean, he really represented for me and he, I thought he did a great job representing the, the side of the rebellion that, you know, you've got to do dark things sometimes, uh, in, in, in searching to do what's right. Like what you brought up earlier, Pete, when he has to kill that other good guy in the alley, because that other good guy is going to give him away. And he has to just gun him down right there to make his escape. I thought Diego Luna brought all of that to Cassian, and I really enjoyed it. He wasn't the only person considered for the role. I think the other people listed were Aaron Paul, which also is a youngish-looking guy in Hollywood, and then the other guy is Edgar Ramirez, who I'm not familiar with, but he's he's a bit older. Uh, but I think they were kind of actually going for that look too. So I think Andy's point actually is well taken. I, I, I along with you guys, didn't really uh, didn't really buy it from Diego Luna. Well, and and I don't want to make it because it feels like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I mean, part of the emotional connection that I made with the film was a result of his portrayal in in these these areas. I'm just saying like if there was a downside to these performances that's the one i felt but i still <laughs> like the guy a lot and i think he he did a fine job uh even if that's the area that i felt was weak how about uh forrest whitaker oh i like forrest whitaker just about every time he's half bionic throw make forrest whitaker half bionic and put him in a movie i'm i'm all in i i like forrest whitaker a lot <laughs> i've liked him since the crying game i am just uh i i'm just fine with Forrest Whitaker. Um, he's, he, I, I think he did a great job at playing the sort of insurrectionist. He was the rebel's rebel. And I love that angle of the, the sort of political maneuvering that they kind of were able to pull together as a result of him. I was, I, I, I was surprised from the trailer. I thought he was going to be in more of the movie and it turns out he was, he was not in as much of the movie as I'd hoped, but, uh, but man, he had two different bionic feet. Come on. Well, I guess his character pops up a bit in, in The Clone Wars. So, I mean, his character has been around for a lot longer. Right. His character was primary, but his role was tiny. So I, I guess his character must be important to the story. But I found I, I love Forrest Whitaker, too. I, I've loved pretty much everything I've seen him in. But I didn't. there just wasn't anything here. It almost felt like stunt casting because, because there was so little for him to do. It was distracting for me. When you put such a big actor in such a small role for me, I just start to wonder why. And maybe it's because he, the character was so big in Clone Wars. And now that, that you're saying that, that, that makes that makes tons of sense. But I, also, I think it's you know it's one of those situations where if it's a small part and you want people to connect to it quickly, you can put a, a big uh, you know well known person in it, and that person draws in your 
sure. uh, you know, your opinions already. And I think by having Forrest Whitaker in such a critical role as Saw Gerrera, I think that really helps us as an audience identify with him. He may be the leader of this extremist group, but we can connect to him and we can accept him and like him because he's Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, that's a fair point. Was there a connection between the Saw Gerrera, um, uh, oxygen box and Darth Vader? Because it sure felt like the same thing to me when he sucked in before he... The the pilot winced when he did that. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought that when he, when he did that, when he did that big suck in, uh, yeah, that there was the, the uh, pilot uh, winced at that. And I was wondering if maybe there was a connection for there. Did anybody else catch that? That's super cool. Well, I saw it, but I feel like it's an it's like an Easter egg that I'm not well equipped enough to answer. I love it. I think that's awesome. I'm gonna look, when I see it some other time. I'm gonna look for that. Uh, other characters for us to talk about. Other actors: Ben Mendelsohn as the director, Krennic. It's just great seeing Ben uh, pop up as a as a big antagonist like this. I mean, we've talked about him a few times on the show in other films, and uh, you know, he's one of those actors that I think is a really great that guy. And I just loved seeing him pop up as as director Krennic. I mean, you know, he and he really holds his own opposite uh, Tarkin and Vader. I you know, like I I love that this guy is really about you know. Uh, his ambitions and, and getting the recognition and everything. I thought that was great. Yeah, and yeah. honestly, anyone to be in the Empire, you need to get great that guys to play those roles because that's who they're supposed to be, right? Is a bunch of important that guys. And he made a good homage to Tarkin, to you know, in the first movie. And and here we get sort of the the Tarkin handoff. But when I when we first see him as he comes to the to the uh, uh, to the plantation in the very beginning, uh, it, it it felt very much like Tarkin and his cronies, right? Tarkin and his goon squad, and I, I thought that was a nice uh, a nice throwback, and, and actually made for a nice sort of bookend to to lead us to the Tarkin era too. And, and we should talk about Tarkin, the 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 everything that that Tarkin had did that was not real it was simulated how did you guys feel about that it's it's hard to tell this story without having tarkin in it because he is such a critical character in the story of the death star how old was he was the actor in 1977 that played tarkin siri what's tarkin (laughs) (laughs) oh my phone's out of batteries okay i mean peter cushing played him he was born in 1913 so 60 so he was what 60 uh 64 64 all right I mean, he died in 94. Right. So, so he would have been uh, 103 during <laughs> the making of this movie. For him and for the big surprise at the very end, the effects are remarkable, making someone look so much younger or anything. But for me, and I'm just such a stick in the mud that I'll just say this and move on with my life. But uh, it's just, it still looks like a video game cutscene to me. It just doesn't look real enough. It's probably somewhere in that uncanny valley in between. And so for me, it's just sort of distracting. I was wondering if there was any way that we could have had him, Tarkin, uh, probably not because he does so much power plays, but if you could have seen that over a video screen, because so many of the video screens are so like uh, nicely low res compared to everything else because it had to match the technology that was there in the original Star Wars. Um, that maybe that would have worked better for me. 
You know, it's interesting because I, I I felt like after the first couple of Tarkin scenes, it it wore off on me pretty quick, and I, it was just more about the narrative. And so I that's fair. I was able to move on uh, pretty quickly, and and so but I I'd become so adjusted to Tarkin as you know CG Tarkin that when I saw CG Leia at the end, it was um, it, it was not as much of a surprise. It was just a surprise that she was there, and and thank goodness she was there, and oh my goodness, it was it was exhilarating. It's just, it was the right effect for me. But it's interesting that you bring it up, too, and, and it's making me reflect on my initial comment. I feel like Ben Mendelsohn could have played, uh, could have actually pulled off Tarkin in this regard. Like, it, it's, it wouldn't be oh. the first time that we have a separate actor playing, you know, uh, playing the, the character, the same character. And goodness, we're having that discussion already elsewhere in the in the forum about other films. So I, I, I think it was an interesting choice. I don't think they could have made the same, uh, they could have, have achieved the same effect with anyone else playing young Leia. Um so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm spitballing here, armchair directing, but um, I, it didn't, didn't bother me. Yeah, I was, I was actually happy with it. But then again, I mean, you look at the other times that we've done this in the last year. Is that when we saw Robert Downey Jr. do it in, as Iron Man um, or as Tony Stark? Yeah, I've been happy with the, the amount of you know, where we are in the Uncanny Valley of, of that particular type of effect. You know, you go back to Blue Crush when they were doing it, yeah. and it was just ridiculous back then. But I think <laughs> we've jumped to the point now where I'm comfortable with it, and Blue I Crush. was actually kind of excited by it in the way that you it know, what used to get me, what used to get me were the eyes, and the eyes didn't get me in either of the characters here. Uh, it was the mouths, if it was anything. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think that's an interesting thing. It used to be like, oh my gosh, you can't do CG eyes. They're impossible. They're impossible. They're the unicorn. Uh, it turns out right. I think they did the eyes just great. So looking at the other real cast members, um, there, there's still a whole lot of people for us to talk about this movie. Some of my favorites, uh, I love Donnie Yen as the blind dude. I actually loved... Alan Tudyk uh, as K2SO uh, was my favorite character in the entire movie. Um, what other characters did you guys really dig? Yeah, you brought up Donnie Yen and uh, him and Jean uh, Wang uh, or Jean Wen as uh, as Chirrut Imwe and Baze Malbus. Those two, that pair, I just totally fell in love with. Yep. Everything that they were doing, it was just such a great partnership between those two. And when those two, uh, when we lose those two, I mean, that really hit me hard. I mean, those two are just such great characters. And it was amazing, you know, they're just such interesting, interestingly written characters that I just were felt were incredibly fresh for the Star Wars universe. Well, they were just paced so well. I think from the moment they're introduced on screen, I think we get we get them in just the right doses so that when they finally die, it's meaningful. Well, and there's a bit about direction and chemistry there too, right? As actors, they had it. They were a pair. They were always a pair. We always felt like they were a pair. They did it right. And I don't think, I, 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 don't, I didn't catch that from other characters, other primary characters in the story. I thought they did I, it well with Diego Luna and Alan Tudyk. I thought those two uh, worked well together. I liked them as a pair. <laughs> they were great. They were fun. Uh, uh, I'll be with you, Jen. Cassian says I have to be. <laughs> 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 that was so, like, I, you know, I, 
I felt like Alan Tudyk served exactly the role he needed to serve in this film. The jokes worked for me well more than 78% of the time. I'm just saying uh, I found myself uh, really enlivened by his performance. And again, it was meaningful when he died. Now, I'm up to probably four or five so far thinking about how I felt when they died and the answer being meaningfully. That's kind of a big deal in a movie that is as large and chaotic as this one. That's fair. That's fair. And he was, I mean, I love everything Alan Tudyk does, um, you know, ever since I met him in Serenity. So, um, yeah. yeah, I thought he was perfect. And Riz Ahmed, uh, you know, I think as Bodhi Rook, the, the pilot, uh, y- you know, we talked about him once, I think, right, with Jason Bourne. Uh, he was the, the Facebook Oh, yeah. uh, president of the Born Facebook company. This was such uh. a better role for him. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. I really enjoyed him in this movie from the very moment we see him, uh, you know, with the hood over his face. Oh, and can I just say one of the best lines in the film right. uh, when they put the bag over uh, Donnie Yen's head and he says, are you kidding? I'm blind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. My kids' favorite characters in the movie were all the great pop-ups from the people in the original trilogy. They loved when R2-D2 and C-3PO came in. They think they're just so funny. Uh, loved seeing them jump in. That was something that they talked about was not going to happen in these standalone movies. So I'm glad they went against their own feelings about that. Can I just ask you guys, because I didn't remember, maybe Andy, this is best directed toward you. Did we see C-3PO and R2-D2 again on the blockade runner at the end? Uh, no, we just see them that one moment. Unless the they're somewhere in the background uh, in the room with Leia. Uh, but uh, I mean, honestly, yeah. I was just staring at Leia. I kind of missed if anything else was going on behind her. Well, that's what I was wondering because I, you know, I, I, I actually that was a thing I, I wasn't personally crazy about. I could have done without it. Uh, I, there was one, um, you know, one <laughs> cameo that I thought was amusing. It was the guy who has the death sentence on Twelve Systems when they see him in the alley of the market <laughs> with the walrus guy uh, who loses the arm in Episode Four. I thought that was a that was a touching uh, cameo. Hey, watch yourself, you know. I. I thought that was great, but I just was wondering, like, boy, he had to get off that planet really quick because it that, yeah. that whole town gets destroyed here in a few minutes. I know, right? <laughs> I I loved that they actually pulled footage of Angus McInnes and Drew Henley as Gold Leader and Red Leader from Episode Four to put in here as the guys leading uh, leading the charge in that last battle. I just loved that they actually brought those those people into this as those characters from seventy seven. And do we know if that was used footage or was that extra footage? Do we know that? I don't know that. All I know is that they pulled that uh, that footage, but I'm not sure. The theater, heard- the theater I was in, and Dash, uh, Darnell Smith, who I brought up before, I was sitting next to during this movie, and when that happened, he just started quivering with excitement, and everyone was just like, "Wee!" It was very. <laughs> it was cool to feed off of their excitement for that. <laughs> That's an insider thing that you get to be periphery. Yeah, exactly. To. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I experience I, vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought one of the uh, uh, one of the powerful connect pieces of connective tissue for me was Jimmy Smits. Uh, I I really like Jimmy Smits, and and um, you know I I was sort of sad uh, about him in the prequels, uh, but I, I felt like it, it was nice to see him provide really the only connective tissue between the first set. Or the the you know episodes one two and three, uh, and episodes four five and six. I I think that ended up being a nice connection. I I agree with that. I like the fact that it was a take back to one two and three, and now he is an interesting bridge to episode four in that he is going to warn 
I forget Leia's planet, right? That it's going away, or that Alderaan, that, right? that star Alderaan, right? Uh, and he's on his way there. So it's a bridge, knowing that this is his end. That this, this is the is last that we're exactly. going to see of him. That I think is clever. And when he said that, I thought it was clever too. I thought that was special. Okay, so if we talk about how they got this movie made, uh, I found a quote listed in one place about John Knoll. He was the visual effects supervisor for the prequel trilogy, and he had pitched the idea for the film t- 10 years before it was developed and then Disney took over the franchise right so he felt he he said that he needed to go and pitch it again to them because he didn't want to forever wonder what might have happened if he uh if if he had right so if he didn't pitch it um i think even as negative as I am about the story, I'm still really happy he did that. I think this is something that's a great addition to the story. And however Disney came about wanting to make these standalone, I'm putting air quotes over that, movies, I think it's great. I, I want more of this. I want more of the universe. And I'm I'm happy when it's done well enough with those connective tissue pieces. Um does anybody else have any ideas about it, getting it made and, and what this means for the upcoming Boba Fett and Han Solo movies coming out? Well, I just want to say one more thing about John Knoll and to his credit, he is, um, you know, he is an incredibly visual guy. And, uh, you know, he's been on uh, he's been with a visual effects supervisor with ILM for a long, long time. Um, you know, I think the better part of the last two decades. But uh, he is the original the original one of two, I think, original purveyors of Photoshop like he. He is cool. a legend in the, you know, you still see him in the Photoshop about credits. Like his, he is a prolific blogger on visuals and imagery and color. And, and so when I saw this movie and, and read that he was getting a story credit on it, that felt uh, like something of note uh, because, and, and deserved because yeah, positive, the kind right? of stuff, yeah, very positive. The kind of stuff that he has turned out has been a part of from the abyss to a bunch of Star Trek movies. Uh, Movies. I mean, he was uh, he was on First Contact and Mission Impossible and Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, he's been he's been everywhere and uh, through ILM. And I think he is just a supremely talented guy. I I hope to see him do more stuff. But for me, and I know that this is not does totally deserving for John Knoll. But for me, I saw this movie. I saw where they chose to to set many of the major set pieces, and I saw the the color palette that they chose, and this screamed John Knoll. <laughs> to me and I just really <laughs> wanted to celebrate that a little bit. From the, the way the things looked in the film, I thought I thought the special effects and everything that we saw in the third act were fantastic. Um I I, I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Um the the camera work, the the virtual camera work that we're seeing in a lot of what they did in the the big space battle, I thought was perfect. Um what did you guys think? The cinematographer listed as Grieg. Is that right? Grieg Fraser? The whole look of it, I, I really enjoyed. It It felt, uh, it was just, I mean, it was a visual feast, really, from beginning to end. All the planets had great feels to them. Uh, even if it was a desert planet, it still felt different from the other desert planets we've seen. Everything had a nice, unique look and tone and feel to it. And yeah, I mean, the space battle at the end, I mean, that was, I think, just one of the most spectacular space battles I've seen seen on on film just watching the the ships flying around and just the way that the entire uh, rebel fleet uh, just uh, they they all arrive and you know it's just they're sitting there and, or you know it's just the 
the few uh, bad guy ships sitting there. And then all of a sudden, all these rebel ships just all of a sudden pop in uh, out of light speed. I mean, it's just, it was fantastic. Likewise, as they're all getting ready to leave and you've got all of a sudden, as they're starting to zip out of there, you've got Darth Vader's uh, giant uh, uh, ship you know, blocking them. And, and I mean, it's just, I don't know. Everything about all of that stuff was just... I think just so creatively done and done in a way where it felt it really put me in the action. Well, the little I absolutely. I mean that when they when the ships hyperspace in, it takes the oxygen out of the theater. I mean there was a collective gasp. Uh but the same thing when that little hammerhead cruiser knocks the star destroyer into the other star destroyer and the destruction in space as they fall through the shield generator i thought was great uh i i love how in in terms of uh you know great big battle sequences they still were able to fit in effectively a trench run uh in this (laughs) in this movie too so uh you know kudos to them well and i think all the things that you're mentioning right so the jumps out of hyperspace uh not necessarily a trench run in particular but the the hammerhead push and all that stuff i think one of the things this movie does extremely well and even some of the stuff on the ground is that it shows us the physics or the the imagined physics of the mythology of of the legend that they've created and how that would affect It, it it answers the questions that we may have had in seeing, seeing the original trilogy and saying when someone jumps out of light speed and someone else is trying to jump in, what happens, right? As the Star Destroyer comes in and all these other ships just get destroyed by it landing on them, basically. I, I think that was really interesting and done really well visually in explaining the physics of the Star Wars universe to us. That's something that I loved about the visual effects in this movie oh i love that she was blown back by the uh by the sort of ionic engine push you know science be damned right um, you know <laughs> when that ship takes off and she's thrown to the edge of the platform i thought that's a first too i don't think we've ever seen any any of that sort of physics uh on display didn't we see that in force awakens when the uh, millennium falcon takes off out of the the hangar uh blasting the oh. the, the guys yeah, no, that's a good point, Andy. I but all part of the new generation, right? They, they're, yeah, right. We're now it's considering physics in a way that we hadn't before. And I think that's important. And uh, Andy, you mentioned that this uh, desert planet was different than the others. That's what you get when you shoot in the Maldives. <laughs> How amazing is it for this cast to be able to be like, okay, we're going to shoot in London, Iceland, uh, Jordan, you know, for the desert. And then we're going to go to like the greatest honeymoon spot on the planet and stick you guys there for months. And we're going to try and do composites that are going to really, really challenge you. I was actually, I was really surprised. Generally, when it's the big vistas uh, for CGI of fake buildings on fake things, I loved the entire look of where the final battle took place. I loved the entire final battle. I mean, really, my my main thing comes down to I didn't really enjoy the first two thirds, and I loved the last third, the actual battle that's going to. With all of the water there, they didn't overpopulate it, which is fantastic. They didn't feel the need of putting, like, there's just a lot of empty space with beautiful water. They respected the space there in a way that I don't think maybe George Lucas would have, uh, which I thought was just stunning. And especially the fact that it take takes place, excuse me, hold on, <coughs> so bright of the day. That usually bright day, a lot of times I feel like they use CGI, heavy CGI, in dark and shadows to hide some of the fakeness of it. And I thought it was just fantastic. I was so excited when they all showed up to do this final battle because it all looked great, even in the wide scenes. Did anybody see it in 3D? Yes. 
how did the how did the lighting work for you in 3D? Did it feel dark to you in space? Did the light uh, aspect of the big battle on the beach make it more watchable? Well, I mean, more watchable. I, I think I, that's a that's sort of a leading question because I think I generally have come around more than you have to 3D. 3D, of course. Um, and and so I see a, a lot of these big movies I see in 3D. I thought that the 3D actually was was lovely in this film. I I didn't feel like there was anything that they were trying to do that would trick me. Uh, but I also didn't think that it was a necessity uh, for the film. I'm not entirely sure that. He he, uh, or convinced, I should say, that that they made enough use of it to make me want to see it in 3D again. I still don't like it in 3D in general, but I I was really happy that I didn't see it in 3D because I was able, I, for me, the watchability of the sort of bright scenes on the beach that was accented by the fact that I didn't have to bother with goggles that made it all darker to me. I didn't have any problem with the 3D. In fact, I, I again, going back to the spacing, just the way everything was moving around the ships, uh, just the way they were flying. I mean, it really worked uh, exceptionally well for me in 3D. So I, I had a great 3D experience. Nice. And we're talking a bit about, about scale, right, too, when we think about that. Uh, it, how did the 3D look when you've got the Death Star coming over the horizon? Because that stuff was about this movie it was just superior to anything we've seen, I think, in really in the Star Wars universe yet in terms of scale. Yeah. The, that sort of big, the big versus little, the, the Gareth Edwards stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of the show. Here, here's a particular first that I, I want to shout out and tell me if I've misheard anything else in the Star Wars lore that I should know. But I think this is the first time where a character has said out loud anything related to the Death Star traveling through hyperspace. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I mean it's got to be incredibly shocking for uh, for all these characters, especially uh, Krennic, when he all of a sudden looks up and he sees the Death Star right overhead, yeah. knowing what that means, which is pointing crazy. at them, right? Yeah. But the fact, but the fact that it made me then think about Episode Four. It's like, wait a minute. That they were tracking that Death Star, and it's like you know you've got that little dot on the screen moving incredibly slowly as it's trying to get around the planet. I'm like, wait, but the Death Star now it can go in hyperspace. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of of sort of retcon uh, going on here. I I'm not I, I'm not sure they wouldn't have been able to make use of hyperspace in in you know seven other movies uh, <laughs> in, in some capacity for this large thing. And, you know, again, science be damned, I'm just saying, if a planet-sized uh, object in space hyperspace is in to that kind of proximity to another planet, somebody's gravity's gonna shift. Gravity, and you, yes. we would see some tidal changes, maybe. I just wonder, Whoosh. I'm no scientist, but... Uh, should be the name of a new spinoff show that we do. So, uh, so do you think George Lucas, George Lucas saw this movie or saw the script and was like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> right? If we, we could have, yeah. No, I think Where's Jar Jar? <laughs> that's what Lucas was saying. Yeah. Uh, but similarly, that's kind of, that's kind of the way that I felt about the music when the initial theme came up. And it was such a variation on a theme, but never, never really got there. And how can you, right? I mean, honestly, the Star Wars theme is quite possibly the most, the, the greatest signature theme in, in movie history. It could be, I mean, arguably, right? Uh, and so to vary, the idea that they're doing variations on a theme for the music here, and then also uh, vari- variations on a theme on the intro, right? They gave us the, the long 
long ago in a galaxy far, far away, but then they didn't give us the crawl because of the standalone thing. Right. How, how are your guys' feelings about that in particular in the music as well? The music was uh, I, I, probably my biggest problem with the film. Uh, I mean, I love Giacchino. I think that he does incredible work. Um, you know, unfortunately, he walked into a really tough situation here where Alexandre Desplat was supposed to be writing all the music, but then because of the reshoots uh, and the way that the post-production schedule shifted, um, Desplat was no longer available to do it because he had already committed to a different project. And so Giacchino had to come in. He only had four and a half weeks to write all the music for the film, and which is which is insane. And I just feel like, you know, I mean, I, I think he did an incredible job making the music feel very John Williams-esque, very Star Wars-esque. Everything felt very authentic to the universe, but I didn't walk out of the theater able to hum a single theme. Like, I still can't pinpoint any theme from the film. No, like, nothing sticks in my head. And that uh, that's that makes me sad, knowing that, uh, you know, he did such a great job of... of getting the tone right, but still walking away with, with, you know, a, kind of a thematically empty film. And this is where I would beg Disney or whomever is in creative control here to say, there is such a large sun of the original theme that why try to recreate the wheel on this? Why not stick with the themes? I, I understand that they're trying to make this standalone, but it would be more it, it's connective tissue to to remember those themes. They do it in the visuals. They do it in the story. Why not in the music as well? Well, well they I do. Think they did do it. And I, there was, a, you know, to Andy's point, I did walk out singing a theme. It was the original theme that closed right. the well, film. Like they ended on exactly. the on the Williams music. But right. but uh, you know, to your point, I I, uh, I found the open specifically the musical cue really jarring. Uh, and it it didn't lead me anywhere. It wasn't anything I could whistle again. Uh, you know, to a- Andy's point, Jacino uh, is in a very difficult position. Uh, that said, I think he is absolutely one of the most capable composers and prolific composers working in cinema right now. And if anybody is capable of you know delivering a- an homage that actually co- leads to original music, I think it is him. Uh, I I hope I- is he on one of the one of the next Next films, do we know if he's doing more? I hope he does, uh, because I think his Star Trek, uh, revisioning the Star Trek music uh, is uh, probably the number one example of when it can be done exceptionally well. Well, John Williams is on for episodes eight and nine uh, at this uh, at this point. Um, But for the other for the other uh, Star Wars stories, you know, the Boba Fett and Han Solo. I'm not sure if they've. um actually announced the composers for those. I yeah, think they're still not. so far out. Well, and one of the quotes from Despla about this was that he was very excited to come to this because of his work with Edwards on Godzilla. So potentially because of the sort of differing directors and things like that, maybe they're looking for uh, teams like that in the, in the future standalones. I, I think that would be fine to my, to my end. Uh, you know, as long as they do a good job of actually bringing back some of the Williams themes, I, I think I'd still be happy with it. I mean, that's what I, uh, you know, I think he has, his music defines the universe. As long as the music feels uh, Williams-esque in Star Wars, it, it, it feels like it fits in the universe, I probably will be okay with it. And that's, this definitely did that. But when I talked before about the, the idea of it diluting, this story diluting it for me, that's kind of how I felt by the themes too. So, um, so I wasn't happy with that. Um, uh, we, so it sounds like all of us brought our kids to this movie, right? And it's PG-13. 
my five-year-old and seven-year-old didn't have a problem with anything. Even with even with everyone dying? Yeah, wasn't it? Well, the only they were upset that the robot died. <laughs> sure. But the yeah. rest of the people, it, it just felt like, I don't know, it was the same. We didn't we didn't right. have to answer any questions. How about you guys? Yeah, my, my six-year-old son, I mean, he he handled it pretty well. He just really, I think, was just confused a lot by things going on in the story. My daughter is very emotional, and when she, um, you know, after the big explosion at the end, she looked up at me and was like, does that mean that they died? I'm like, yeah, honey, it does. And she just, she curled up in a ball in her chair and weeped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was, oh my God. she was heartbroken. Uh, she was so devastated that those characters died. But then then it had all the ending, and by the time Princess Leia showed up, that really kind of amped her back up. But it still, it still required some conversations about, you know, sometimes good people make choices that mean they know they're going to have to die in order to save a bunch of other people. And so there were some pretty heavy conversations that we ended up having after this. It's like the end of Toy Story 3 when they're all going down into the flame pit, but then they just do. They just do. They they just go into the play pit. They don't get they don't get saved by the by the claw arm from right. God. They're just like, hey everybody, if we're gonna die, we're gonna die together, and then they melt the end. <laughs> <laughs> and then Pixar gives a big middle finger to the world. <laughs> And then they release Cars 3. Right, exactly. My kids, uh, you know, my kids are a little bit older and uh, there was there was no question. I mean, the only thing that they, the only thing they came out saying was, uh, you know, they, they didn't know if, you know, whether or not this one was their new favorite Star Wars movie. That's awesome. Uh, in, in fact, the other uh, the other adult uh, that I saw this with, I, well, I saw this with many adults, but one of them uh, came out with me and leaned in and said, uh, well, that's it. That's my favorite Star Wars movie. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I I mean, I talk to people who are like, you know, I have been waiting for this. This is the dark Star Wars story that I've been wanting to see. Something that, that took things a little darker and it, it told a story that didn't have to be about the Skywalker family. It was actually new and unique and different and it finally felt fresh. And so for some people, you know, I, I I can see that. Well, and I don't think that the conflict for people like Ben Lott and people like myself, even I I don't feel negative about the movie. I, I, I think I think the conflict is not going to keep people from seeing the movie, and I think the fact that there are people that Pete, both you and Andy, heard saying that it's their new favorite, I think it's going to garner enough interest that it's going to. I mean, and the fact that it's in the Star Wars universe, it's still going to kill at the theaters. Um, early figures are saying that it's 150 million already, right? And it's Saturday. It opened. Was it Thursday midnight is when it yep. opened? Um, I fandangoed our seats because I was worried about it, but there was there was really no need. Um, it, shows are going to sell out, and I think like Andy and like myself, who's watching the film right now as we speak. Um, no, I I think <laughs> I think there's going to be more sellouts, and I think it's going to just do really well. Um, how are your theaters? Did people get up and and cheer? Was it was it filled? Was there a line? I think everybody fandangos at my theater now. Like I I really do. I walked into a jam full theater at 10 o'clock this morning and there was Whoa. no line it was like nobody even showed up uh, you know it, it, this is just not a movie going experience I was used to but of course we have everybody has reserved seats in this theater so right. um, you know it was uh, it, it was easy for us but it was full and there was a lot of excitement about this movie there was an exhilarated um, feeling when the when the film ended people were the chatter was absolutely positive. What I found strange uh, for both of my screenings um, was that they were both about half full. And this was an IMAX 3D. And I was like, it's, it's strange to me that it's just so empty in the theater right now. 
Um, but, you know, I walk out of the theater and probably 50% of the screens at the theater I was at were playing Star Wars. So it's like, <laughs> I, I feel like Just, they yeah. had it on so many screens that you're never going to get turned down for a, a theater getting sold out if you try to go to this. There's always another screening that you can pop into, so... Well, that's true. And then also, I think there's a lot of good movies out right now. I think there's a lot of good things for people to see. I've been hearing people catching movies that, you know, that maybe they're avoiding the lines, but they're going to movies that came out over the last couple of weeks because they're trying to catch up with everyone else. Well, and and even, uh, you know, counter-programming has been really strong, I think, with Collateral Beauty and Manchester by the Sea and La La Land. And I, I mean, this, yeah. is, and it's the uh, this is a good weekend for really quality films. Yeah. It's awesome. Nocturnal time. animals hit. Allied. I mean, it's it's a good time. Great stuff out there. Because I'm not a part of the Star Wars universe that much, I do officially know what my job would be. I would be the guy if I was in the Star Wars universe. I'm that guy that's still they're putting in that bucket at the top of the pole, who like has like <laughs> like, uh, like binoculars or something. Right. <laughs> Who's who like is still. He seems like someone, he's clearly someone's like dumb nephew. Like they've got to give him a job. And they're like, look, buddy, this is super important. Yes, don't worry about all the radar and all the beeps and boops. If a ship comes in, you've got to ring this bell, right? Because otherwise we'll never know. He seems to be in charge of like, yep, that guy took off. And I feel like that'll be me. Okay, but look, did you notice the first time we see the guy in the bucket, he's dutifully looking through his binoculars. Love the it. second time when the when the the, the main mission but. leaves, he's just sitting around. He may be doing a crossword puzzle. There are no binoculars inside. He's on Pinterest. There's no reason for that job to exist. And that's why I think that would be me in the Star Wars universe. It's just because everywhere there's a rebel base is actually Fantasy Island. He he is tattooed. Right, exactly. So you've got to keep them updated, yeah. <laughs> there's no other jobs for us to take. Maybe it is time for us to rank it. Flick chart, flick chart. Didn't write a song this time, but I really like the third part. Pew, pew, pew. Let's rank it, flick chart. Our special stack rankings for the film board can be found at flickchart.com slash tnrfilmboard. And it is an interesting collection of studs and duds. A lot of them are duds. Check it out to see where your preferences match ours or veer from ours and start your own ranked list today. I am crazy interested to see where we go with this one. And I'm kind of afraid that we're going to have a lot of um, uh, split votes. (laughs) Force Awakens is number one. Is that right? Force Awakens is number one. Yes. Okay. So let's see where this one ends up. All right. First up, Rogue One or The Dark Knight Rises. I am totally Rogue One. I'm totally Rogue One. Dark Knight Rises is the third one? Yeah, that's Bane and his mask. Every time. Um, I would say Dark Knight Rises. I'm going to say Rogue One. Throw okay. my vote in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> Rogue One or Captain America Civil War? Captain America oh, Civil nuts. War. I'm Rogue One. It's cool because we clearly handle Rochambeau so well. Based <laughs> on our last episode, this will go smoothly. <laughs> I am uh, Rogue One. Uh, 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 I'm going to say Captain America Civil War. Can't do nice. it. Nice. Tommy, you and Pete do it, please. Okay. Did, did we figure th- how to do this? Scissors. Scissors. Oh, crud. <laughs> Why is this so hard? Okay. Scissors. Fair Rush enough. you. All right. Rogue One or Doctor Strange. Last month's film board. Doctor Strange. Rogue One for me. Uh, Rogue One for me. 
Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> I literally dislike rock, paper, scissors so much that my plan was to always just like wait and take and the just vote. Take and, the vote. Yeah, but just, you can't do it. Can't no, you just, can't just it. pick Rogue One so and make it doc, easy on yourself. Doctor Strange. Okay. So here's and, a I have a recommendation for for both of you, and I think this is gonna make things go easier. How about It's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. Okay, I'm ready. Rock. It did work. Totally worked. <laughs> oh my god! Science. That's amazing. I love how you start by saying it's not going to work. It's not going to work, Tommy, and then you say, "Okay, I'm ready." Like you are doing any. You are a non-contributing zero <laughs> in that scenario. I but thank God okay. you were ready. <laughs> I didn't say I'm ready. All right. So Doctor Strange took it. Next one up: Rogue One or Fury? Rogue One for me. Fury. Rogue One. Rogue One. Thank I you. want to change my vote to Fury. No, Just... you don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rogue One or the man from Uncle. Rogue One for me. Man from Uncle. Rogue One. Okay, Tommy yeah. and Andy. Andy counts. Okay. <laughs> Ready, Tommy? Yep. Scissors. Okay. Scissors. Ha ha ha! Rock. Oh yeah, I read that same online That's article. That's right. You I, did. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I know how the odds work. <laughs> All right, well, that leaves Rogue One as number nine on our flick chart, right between Man from Uncle and Fury. I think next time we do a Star Wars movie, we're going to get an odd number of uh, voices on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty excited that we figured out this rock paper scissors thing. Big I think step. we could do this all night long. <laughs> I kind of want to redo all of them now. <laughs> Let's go this. All right, come on, child forty four. One, two. All right. <laughs> okay, letterboxed. Andy, where can someone find our Letterboxd film diary? They can head over to letterboxd.com slash the next reel. It's out of five, but you can have half stars, Tommy. And I'm going to say three <laughs> and a half. So, Tommy, what's your ranking? Two and a half. Two and a half. Pete? Well, it, it's an easy four star for me. I had a great time at this movie. I'm, I'm actually wondering if it's a four and a half, but I'm, I think I'm going to settle oh. it for Oh, that's exciting. I'm going to, I'm just saying five. I'm just going to go with five. Wow. Wow. I love it. That's great. I just, I had that's such a great a, time. I was so wonderful. emotionally invested and connected that, uh, yeah, that's where I am. So. That makes me so happy. I think we have a huge spectrum. I think that's great. So what is the math on that? Uh, 3.75 is the average. Yeah, I round up to four. That makes sense. So where do we go from here? Film board in January. We're starting out new uh, 2017. We're going to pick a whole bunch of movies that are going to make me uncomfortable. The first one is Split. Woo-hoo! Uh, James McAvoy. <laughs> My wheelhouse. M. Night Shyamalan. It's uh, going to scare the pants off me, and it's going to be interesting. I'm excited to talk about it. Do you guys have any feelings about Split? But I'm, I'm mostly, I am just so happy for Tommy. I can't even... I, I'm really delighted. I feel like it's been years now, and we've finally given him something besides Child 44 to talk about. <laughs> or Jurassic World. Yeah. <laughs> On our very... editorial calendar, there is some suspense and scary stuff coming, which has got me peeing my pants already. <laughs> I'm very it's a I'm growth excited. year for you. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited. I really hope the twist isn't that it turns out that there are 20 different <laughs> James McAvoy's. Because that will be a sh- that will be a real shame, and uh, like I just hope it is really one person, and they don't try to shove in a Shyamalan twist. This is actually the sequel to the Prestige. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there actually are twenty, and they yeah. actually live together in a house. Yeah, right. 
That's awesome. On the Mothership show, how are we wrapping up the show, the end of the year here for you guys, Pete, Andy? With hate and rage. Oh, really? <laughs> we're ending with our, our holiday episode. Uh, we're going to be celebrating with Black Christmas. So, JJ, there's another one for you. <laughs> to really, uh... That's Santa. Yes. That's the Santa serial killer, right? It's not the San- no, it's not the <laughs> no? Santa serial killer, no. Oh, this what's is Black the, Christmas? Uh, Black Christmas. That's you're thinking of Silent Night, Deadly Night. I am. You're right. Okay. <laughs> no, this is this is the um, start of the first person point of view killer, where you don't know who the killer is. Cool. Uh, yeah, Margot Kidder yes. is in this movie. Oh, I like her. And uh, Olivia Hussey. Is it Hussey? Olivia Hussey, the Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. So the whole thing is first person. No, no, no. no, no oh, no. okay. Not the whole film. Uh, it's, but it's you know when you have that killer and you just see them from the, it's their POV as they're stalking somebody. You know that whole horror <laughs> trope. This is where that all began. Every time there's the killer scene, the killer is first person. That's interesting because um, I know they're doing that. What's that other movie that they have? The the adrenaline movie where you are hardcore like, Henry. Hardcore Henry. That's the help. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was hardcore Henry. I got it. That yeah, was Tucker. Tucker. Ages, yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And it actually seems like a fitting end to this year because I've heard from lots of people. You've seen the little ornaments, the like uh, dumpster fire ornaments that people are, are yeah. putting up on their trees for 2016 and stuff. Uh, I am so ready for a change of the new year. And I'm so excited for what we're going to do next year. Uh, this show has been like a very special thing for me. It's been like a life raft in a sea of turmoil for me all year long. So thank you so much for hanging out mm. with me this year. Uh, and I really appreciate everything that you guys do. And I appreciate our chats. This is so special for me to talk and disagree and agree and have fun with movies. So cheers. Big cheers to you, to Pete Wright. Oh, thanks, JJ. Much love, Tommy Handsome. Thank you, buddy. Love you. Andy Nelson, what are you doing on New Year's Eve? Uh, I'm going to be, uh, I don't know, watching uh, watching this and thinking of you guys. I, don't <laughs> I might be there. So I might be in your neck of the woods. So we need to chat uh, in Slack or somewhere off it. We, we should talk about that. Oh, really? Awesome. Meet up, meet up, meet up. Yeah. Last year, I was, in a, I was in a crazy hotel just south of the city uh, eating pizza by myself. And I didn't Aww. call. So this year, I won't let that happen again. You should definitely call. I will. Everyone out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening. We love sharing our chats with you. So send us a rating or a review or a question or even a request on things you'd like to hear from this show. Uh, We've got lots of fun and interesting things in mind for next year. And we want to do everything you want and nothing that you don't. So chat us up. I love you all. Till next. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. 
I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching, all sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. 